Good morning. It's good to um, open the scriptures again on this pre-Christmas morning. I don't know if we can open the scriptures to that well-known passage that often and more than often is read on Christmas around churches today and over the next two days. Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. Follow me as I read uh, from verses 1 and we'll read through to verse 20. Not that I'm going to extrapolate on every single verse here. But you'll be familiar with the narrative, or this part of the narrative of Jesus' birth, but it's, it's so good to go over it again and, uh, as we focus in on some of the details. Luke chapter 2, verse 1. Now in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quinarius was governor of Syria and everyone was on his way to register for the census each to his own city Joseph also went up from Galilee from the city of Nazareth to Judah to the city of David which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and family of David in order to register along with Mary who was engaged to him and was with child and while they were there the days were completed for her to give birth and she gave birth to her firstborn son and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. In the same region there were some shepherds straying in the fields, staying in the fields and keeping watch over their flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. For behold, I will bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Saviour who is Christ the Lord. Verse 12. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is well pleased. When the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, Let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. So they came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. When they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. And all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. The shepherds went back, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just as had been told them. And may the Lord add a blessing to his word this morning. As it's only two days before Christmas Day, I wish this morning to obviously bring you a message centred around this wonderful occasion. And it is a wonderful occasion, isn't it? Even the world loves this occasion, all for the wrong reasons and everything. But for the Christian, we love this occasion. 
And as we think about that, it is sad that the real purpose and understanding of Christmas is lost and buried in all the stuff from Santa Claus to Christmas trees to holidays and gifts galore and an excuse for party. All that stuff buries the real purpose and meaning of Christmas. But as you think about that, don't be too hard on the world because what more can you expect from a world of people that is spiritually blinded to the truth of Christmas? That being Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, was born of a woman on that historic Christmas morning. They're blind to that and to the truth of that. So let them have their fun because it'll be short-lived. But we as Christians also live in this blinded world too, right? We all know it. And we're in this world, but not of it. We should remember that. And that should make a massive difference when it comes to even something like celebrating and remembering and do what we're doing at Christmas time. A massive difference. We shouldn't be captivated by the consumerism that captivates the world and that Christmas promotes, just like Easter promotes, just like every other festive occasion promotes. We shouldn't be captivated by that. But we should be consumed with being salt and light. That's a job description, by the way. We're to be salt and light in our world. We should be consumed with that because as salt and light, we are to point blind people to the Christ of Christmas. That's our job. And being true salt and light, of course, is determined on how conversant we are with or how gripped we are with biblical truth, and on this occasion, about Christmas. And it's also sad to say, many Christians have lost their edge somewhat on this. Christmas truth has been dulled and dumbed down in many believers' minds. We have absorbed so much of the world's take on this festive season that we have lost and ignorantly ignore the truth of what Scripture is so clear on about Christmas. You know, when we think about Christ's conception, let's think about that, and his birth, all that was a miraculous happening in history. These weren't eternal matters. His conception and his birth were historic happenings when deity took upon itself humanity. Wow. That's worship material, right? Man? No wonder we can sing that we adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him. You know, that truth alone should drive home to each one of us in all its sacredness, in all its holiness, in all its wonderment, Emmanuel, God with us. Surely God alone is to be worshipped. You see, the truth about Christmas, as you know, is really about God manifesting himself in human form via the birth of God's Christ child, can we say, and him dwelling amongst men. That's the truth about Christmas. And as we think about that miraculous truth alone, 
we must appreciate that that is beyond the grip of human reason. Way beyond. The miraculous conception where Mary was to be found with child by the Holy Spirit, the Scripture tells us. That's an accomplishment that took place in history which completely defies all natural forms and patterns of human procreation. Defies it completely. Our human minds can't get around that. We can't reason it out scientifically. It's beyond us. The very Son of God, the Eternal Son, equal in the triune Godhead, submitted himself to the will of the Father and he took upon himself humanity and stepped into time as the promised seed. And that seed, that living embryo, was at all times very God. Inside the womb of Mary, dependent on a human mother, Implanted by the Holy Spirit of God, he became a baby and was born at Bethlehem. Now, folks, that's the truth of Christmas. And I'm only just scratching the surface. That's the wonder, that's the glory, that's the joy of Christmas. It's all about Jesus Christ willingly coming into the world, ultimately to save sinners just like you and I. It's all about the God and pure grace moving towards his rebellious and sinful creatures and sending his beloved son to be their saviour. That's what it's about. When he became our substitute on the cross of Calvary. As you know, this is what Christmas or the Christ in Christmas is all about. And now you will be saying, yes, we know all this. It's the gospel. We know all this. And it's truths that we love and, and are so preeminent in mind. And you know what? We've heard it all a hundred plus times before. I know you have. But you're going to hear some of it again, whether you like it or not. But this time I want you to note some of the details that often get buried in all the hype and the commercialism that surrounds this Christmas season. I have no PowerPoint, so don't bother waiting for them this morning. I just want you to focus on what's happening. You see, the biblical details get lost because people so often present Christmas as they themselves want to understand Christmas and not as Scripture spells it out. They want to see a gentle Jesus, meek and mild that little child, but they don't want to think past that because it becomes too confronting, especially when he lives a perfect life and spells out what righteousness looks like and then as a substitute he dies on Calvary. They don't want that. We just, we'll keep him in the crib, as it were. You see, even the few mock, few mock nativity scenes that we might see, we don't see many of them these days because the world doesn't like that anymore either because getting too close to the truth. But even a few of the mock nativity scenes that we might see, they often have angels and, uh, and a crib full of straw and, uh, which result in a, a poetic and artistic license to tell a story that, that suits them and the audience that watch it. 
And all of these extra images, they kind of rub off, don't they? They rub off. And when they rub off, they can leave us deficient in understanding and seeing the true story of Christmas as Scripture tells it, records it. And so this is why getting the details or even some of the details surrounding the Christmas morning and seeing the sovereign hand of God over the details is so important. And so my goal this morning is to look at some of the details of Christmas story or this Christmas story as found in the passage of Scripture that we've read this morning. And I want to challenge you to present, or your present thinking, I should say, I want to challenge your present thinking and assumptions on some of those details that you may have that need maybe tweaking and correcting a little bit. And, um, and it happens to all of us. And so I'll do this by drawing your attention to two important aspects. Firstly, hopefully we will gain some greater clarity about the actual circumstances surrounding Jesus' birth. And secondly, my desire is that we might gain a greater appreciation and devotedness concerning the character of God and his sovereign attention in arranging the details for this Christmas morn to happen. Okay, first take a look at the first detail we see in verse 1. We see there that the Emperor Augustus had issued a decree and the decree was that all the inhabited earth should be registered. Obviously, when he's thinking of all the inhabited earth, that was in his earth, as far as he was concerned. The only world that matters is the one who he was in charge of. And so the reason for this registration is not given by Luke. Historical records, site taxation is a primary reason for registration of this period, and some of your translations may even have that as being the reason for that census that was taken. And it wouldn't surprise me because when it comes to governments and everything, it's all really about taxation, right? Nothing changes. But Luke tells us that everyone was, well, everyone was on his way to their towns to be registered. We see that in verse 3. So Joseph and Mary were obedient to Roman law, even taxation, if that was the case. And so this meant that even though Joseph and Mary were living way up in Nazareth, because it was way north, they were commanded to register themselves in Bethlehem. Why? Because Joseph was of the house and the family of David. We see that in verse 3 and 4. So let's stop and think about this little detail. You see, this journey itself was by no means a small feat that is, from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Picture the scene. Here was Mary, close to giving birth, in other words, heavily pregnant, to the Saviour of the world, and she gets out and she sets out and gets prepared to go on this five- to six-day journey over some pretty difficult terrain, and it really is. James will probably remember. Belmay's not here, but... Um, She'll remember, we, we, we travelled that when we were living in that land and it was up and down as we drove through the Judean mountains. We were travelling in a car on Tassil Road and it's up and down from Bethlehem right up to Nazareth. But they would have been walking. Mary, at very best, would have been perhaps sitting side-saddled on a donkey. 
and they're a beast of burden. They're not the most... Most of them walked, actually, because to be riding on a donkey was worse. You led a donkey. And so they would be walking, and, um, and she travels with her betrothed husband-to-be, Joseph, and they take this 130k journey, and they head for Bethlehem. Why? As we've been told, to be registered by the government in their places of origin. And so what we see here, folks, is another example of how God engineers the lives and circumstances even of governments and people to bring about his sovereign purposes. That's what we see. Obeying the Roman law census at this specific time may be considered a mere detail in human life, but this detail was in full accord with God's sovereign plan. Obeying this Roman law. You see, Joseph's and Mary's obedience to this law, it was embedded and in full accord with God's sovereign purposes for further revealing himself to mankind for the redemption of sinners. This was another step in his progressive revelation, something that had been prophesied hundreds and hundreds of years before had kicked in. We have that recorded in Micah, as you'll know, written 700 years before the birth of Christ. This is what Micah 5.2 says. But as for you, Bethlehem, he speaks as Bethlehem, as if it's a person, but as for you, Bethlehem, from you shall go, sorry, from you shall one go forth for me to be ruler in Israel, his going forth from long ago and from the days of eternity. That's what Micah wrote 700 years before the birth of Christ about Bethlehem. So why wasn't Jesus born anywhere else? Because God had decreed 700 years before through the prophet of Micah that he'll be born in Bethlehem. And so God busies himself, as it were, and arranges the circumstances even for governments to call census, to tax people more than likely. So here is Mary, heavily pregnant, and Joseph, her husband-to-be, finding arriving at their family town on obeying the laws of the Roman government. Now, this seemingly insignificant travel detail led to another one that we want to look at. Here they were, tired, no doubt. Mary was heavy with child. They wanted and needed lodging, and that's a pretty normal thing to want, as you can imagine. We drive from here to Melbourne, and we feel like we need to stop, don't we? We need to camp out for the night somewhere. Now, a good question to ask here is, concerning Joseph and Mary, where in this little old town of Bethlehem would be their first port of call? Where would it be? This is their hometown, remember? Many nativity scenes and Christmas pageants often portray Mary and Joseph arriving in Bethlehem like you might arrive at a town when you don't make a motel booking on a prior occasion. And it's a holiday weekend where everyone's in town. Well, Mary and Joseph also are often portrayed as being greeted by an innkeeper who woefully reports, there's no room, folks, no room available. Sorry. Sorry, no vacancy. Every room is chocker. We often see this occasion going down as. You should have used booking.com months back for this weekend. 
tell. It's often portrayed. A bit like my mate and I, a couple of months back, on our bikes, and we rumble into Renmark, thinking, now yeah, this would be a good place to stay. We did notice all the beautiful roses all around the whole city. You could smell them as you're, as you're riding past. We went to this likely-looking place. It wasn't a four-star. We chose two-star and one-star. But even down to the one-star, sorry, it's Rose Festival weekend and every room is chocker. It's booked. And so that's the idea of how it was and how it, many scenes that we think about, that's the idea that is portrayed, leaving Mary and Joseph searching desperately for accommodation. It has them in our mind having to eat humble pie and forgetting their four-star hope for motel and gladly accepting a cattle shed. Is that the way the birth of Jesus took place? Is, that, is this really the right story? Was Jesus really born homeless? I suggest not. Let's take a look at verse 7 in chapter 2. Our translation reads, there was no room for them in the inn. Sometimes something that we could uh, all find out for ourselves is wrapped up in the Greek word for inn, which is the word kapaluma. And this Greek word simply means guest room. It doesn't it does not carry the idea of being some kind of a hotel, motel or holiday inn. It doesn't carry that idea at all. Luke reports that Jesus was laid in a manger, literally in an animal feeding trough. Why? Because there was no place for them in the guest room. There was no place for them in the kapaluma. Now this interpretation is strengthened by the fact that the Cataluma is the same word used by Jesus in Luke 22 and verse 11. And let me refresh your memories on that. This is where Jesus instructs his disciples. On this occasion, he said to his disciples, you shall go into town and you shall say to the owner of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room or where is the Cataluma in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? You remember that? Same word used. The Cataluma is the guest room. And in this case, in Luke 22, it was the upper room or the upper chamber of a house. The word in here is not an equivalent to our modern day paperhead per night motel accommodation. Now, don't get me wrong, there was that kind of accommodation around. But when spoken of, it's used as a different Greek word used for that. If you look at Luke 10, Luke um, highlights that different word here. And you'll remember the story of the Good Samaritan, right? The Samaritan went to him and uh, this, this person who was robbed and bleeding and, and maimed on the light, and you remember the story, how the Pharisee, etc., they walked past and they wouldn't have anything to do with him, but the, the Samaritan, that's why we call him good, uh, and the Samaritans were despised people by the Jews. And anyway, that's another story. But he came to this man and he went to him and it says, and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his animal and, listen to this, brought him to an inn. In our English, an inn, 
is the same word. But brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Now we can easily relate to this because this is where you paid the proprietor the same as we do when we check out of our motels. Same deal. This is the golden chain motel kind of complex here. Palestinian version. But guess what? The Greek word here is not kataluma. It's very different. Pandiachon, if you want to know that. So if there is no room in the kataluma, the guest room, where on earth do Mary and Joseph find accommodation? Does this give us license to presume they immediately went to the bottom of the heap and they chose an animal-only shed? Does it? Again, I suggest not, that this is not the case. I would suggest that there were other family members also in the same predicament. Hence that they were witnesses to Jesus' birth. So what is more likely is this. Let's paint a picture again or keep painting this picture. Sorry if I have wrecked your nativity scenes that you've got embedded heavily into your minds and thinking. But allow the scriptures to do that. So Joseph returned to the homeland to register according to the decree of the emperor of the day. And having, to, ha, having come from Bethlehem and from the family of David, presumably Joseph, what would, have, what, what would he have done? He would have gone to family, right? And after all, even in those days, it was, it, even today, it's a reasonably small city compared to many others in Israel. And in that day, it was much smaller, a very small city. It was an insignificant town. This would be certainly a time when typical Jewish hospitality laws would kick in. And by the way, even Jewish hospitality laws, even amongst the secular Jews, generally speaking, are very prevalent. What Jewish hospitality law meant is that you looked after your own. You can go right through and read many other instances of, of this. And even in the law, you, you were to provide. And I'll be speaking a little bit more about hospitality, as it were, when it comes to the Christian next week. But hospitality to your own was a big thing in Jewish law and culture. And if you didn't, shame on you. Shame on you. But of course, there would be many others from the house of David there, right? Many others from the house of David. Of all the rallies would have been there. They were all heading back to town like they were commanded by the emperor to do, to register. And guess what? Mary and Joseph arrived, but you know what? Sorry, there's no room in the guest chamber. And more than likely it was a first in, first serve kind of deal. Oh, Uncle such and such got here first and see, he's there all settled in with the kids. It's a bit like the way the guest room is prepared for the Lord's Supper with his disciples. So this left only the spare room remaining, the back room. You know that room that every house has one kind of room? if you really have to squeeze people in? The sleep out, the overflow room? This room certainly would not pass occupation, health and safety, no doubt. 
But for a family overflow, it was better than the shame of turning your rallies out on the street. When living in Bethlehem, James might remember this too. We are often invited out to Palestinian homes, which are very eastern and and um, I will say they they have copied off, copied off even the Palestinians have copied off Jewish roots. Jewish Jewish culture has integrated and back and forth, so forth. And often these, even modern homes, had these kind of rooms. And I remember one particularly that we went, and the owner of this home was Joseph. He was called Joseph, even though he's a Palestinian. Uh, Orthodox man. And he showed us his house, which I was always very proud of, and then he said, I must show you my spare room, my guest room, my whatever room. So actually we went downstairs. And he had dug into the rock, and you can do that in Bethlehem, all over that country. The rock is quite easy to dig. Dig out, you know. You may need a jackhammer, but it can be dug out. And here was this room. Not a very big room. It was closed off with a door and a, and a bit of grating and had all the supplies and everything in there. Actually, what they built those rooms for was for emergencies. And in this case, uh, Joseph's emergency was when, that was where when um, Saddam Hussein was firing Scud missiles right over the Israel and hopefully landing, right over the West Bank and hopefully landing in Israel. But quite often those Scud missiles, they, um, they misfired, you know, and, they, and some of them landed even on their own people, as it were, in, in the West Bank where we were. And say, so, well, if there's a chemical attack, you know, we can get down here and we can block off that part of it. Yeah, so what I'm pointing, I'm saying is that there's a very common thing for these houses to have this extra room, this dugout. Interesting to, to see also, for those who have been to um, Bethlehem, and we visited this many occasions, and um, you'll see the Church of Nativity. It was built by Queen Alina, Constantine's wife or grandmother or something. It was built over a supposed spot where Jesus was born. And it's kind of downstairs in a cave dug out of the rock. And obviously originally was joining a house. And, um, and so that was the case. So even though used for... And these rooms could be used for anything. When the snow got too deep outside or, or the weather got too difficult, you could bring your animals and put them into this room. They had to have somewhere to stay. So even though this multi-purpose room had animal feed troughs, because that's what a manger is, by the way. I remember seeing a manger that the archaeological dig had done up. They're about a metre long. The one that I saw was. About that wide. And they're about that wide. And they were hollowed out. Ideal for putting a baby in. Absolutely ideal. Better than a cardboard box. This thing was like shaped like that, you know. That's what a manger is. So forget about these wooden ones with straw stuffed in it and whatever. All this is to say that this room was a multifunctional room when it had to be. And this is something we can relate to. When your family arrives for Christmas over the weekend, there's... There, and, there's, and there's heaps of them that may come to your place. What do you do? Send them down to holiday in? No, you want them to be with you, right? 
We wanted to be with you. You, you want to be hospitable. You offer them the floor even, the sleep out, the kids' playroom, the futon in the lounge, even with its hard mattress. You offer them that at least. They might say no, but at least you offer it to them. You do this because that's what you would rather do than bringing shame on you and the family by sending them away. In a similar fashion, Jesus was not born in some impersonal derelict stable with only cows and sheep and straw as his admirers. He wasn't born like that. But rather in a family back room, a lean-to maybe, an outer extension, a dugout that was likely to house aunts and uncles and cousin bros as it would cows and sheep when it was needed. The next detail we see is when the shepherds arrive after seeing and hearing the message of the angel of the Lord. We see this in verses 9 to 14. What did the shepherds do? What did the shepherds do? It says in verse 16, And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. Now here's a detail that's often missed and overlooked in the narrative of Jesus' birth. If you carry on and you read verse 18 and it says, And all who heard it, that is the angel's message, and all who heard it wondered at the things told them. Now you instantly got to ask, all who heard? What do you mean, all who heard? Surely all means more than Mary and Joseph and it certainly wouldn't be meaning cows and sheep and donkeys. The text suggests that this was very much an extended family deal. The multi-purpose room was full of people rather than cows and beach and sheep. There were certainly more than Mary and Joseph in attendance on this occasion. Certainly more than Mary and Joseph. In other words, we can say that Jesus was not born at home alone. He was born among family who were returning home for government registration. Now let me suggest some application on this. You see, the truth about Christmas is much more than Mary and Joseph returning home and enjoying family fellowship and hospitality. Just like there is much more to Christmas than you or your ch- and your children returning home and enjoying family festivities. There's much more to Christmas than that. heard someone say on TV the other night when asked about Christmas, oh it's all about family, it's a very common expression right, Christmas is all about family all about family, no it's not, not the real Christmas, not the biblical Christmas, Christmas is about the one and only true God, it's about the Lord of heaven, the King of kings, the Prince of peace, the Saviour of the world coming to our home that's what it's about you see we couldn't make our own way to God and his home in heaven because of our sin and, and, the, and God's holiness which demands perfect righteousness. We couldn't make it there on our own. So God in his great grace and mercy and love, he came to us. He came in humility as a babe in Bethlehem to be clothed in our sin. 
Because all our sin and all our transgressions were heaped upon him. Isaiah tells us, and by his stripes we are healed. And there on the cross, with our sin heaped upon him, one by one by one, the Lord Jesus paid the price that God demanded of his son at Calvary. What for? So that we might be clothed in the righteousness of Christ whereby God could accept us as one with his son. That's Christmas. That's continuing the story of Christmas where it should for our time in this day of grace. This is the whole truth about Christmas. The Gospel of John explains that that the same God who created the universe, he he put on flesh and dwelt among us. John 1.14. Always appreciated Eugene Peterson's paraphrase. He puts a good touch on this. He says, God became one of us and moved into our neighborhood. So how will you respond? Do you trust the Lord Jesus for salvation? The joy and the peace that we so often speak about and sing about at Christmas time, do you have that spiritually within and know that you stand before God accepted rather than being condemned? Because it's either one or the other. You're either accepted by God or condemned by God. And it's through faith alone and trust alone that you are accepted. Secondly, and just finally, what do we learn about the character of God from, Christmas, from this Christmas account? I think we learn many things, but two things stand out in which I bring you your attention. And that is, though God is creator and ruler and sustainer of all things, he humbled himself to become our saviour. He was born wrapped not in royal linens but in bands of cloth. Luke 2, 7. He was born not in a palace where kings should be born but in a lean-to room of a house likely among relatives where animals were sometimes housed when needed. You see, folks, God could have revealed himself however he chose. But he chose in all humility to cover and clothe his majesty in human form and to be born in a lowly dwelling. He chose to become like us. Philippians 2.8 tells us that. It says, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on a cross. J.N. Darby, an old scholar, the starter of the Brethren movement, he put it so well when he wrote, he began in a manger and ended on the cross and along the way had nowhere to lay his head. That's our saviour. We also see that our God is a loving God. So not only humble, but he was, he's loving. You see, God was motivated not by duress or compulsion. He was motivated by love, an eternal love from eternity past. This was not some second thought or secondary plan or fallback plan. God knew it all from, the, from eternity past. 
And that's why he so clearly says in John 3.16, you know that verse so well, for God so loved the world that he gave his only beloved son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting love. Love was what motivated God. To think that the Son of God set aside his glory for our sinners is an amazing truth. To think that the Son of God would come to earth knowing that his arrival marked the beginning of a divine rescue mission that the Lord and God himself are still involved in. And that this rescue mission would involve his death and his burial and his glorious resurrection. And you know what? It also involves his promise to return. The pivotal redemptive story has been and passed, but it's not the end of the story. It's not the end of the story because Jesus is coming again. And as he came the first time, it was prophesied, and he did in humility, he will come again the second time as is prophesied over and over in the Old Testament, but not with humility. He will come as a righteous judge and ruler and as a lion of the tribe of Judah, not a lamb for the slaughter. He will come again. Are you going to be ready for that? I trust so. The Christmas story is the middle of God's redemptive story. The truth of his carnation is what opens the door for our eternal destinies. So the question needs asking by each one of us, where will you spend eternity based on the truth of this Christmas narrative? Do you personally trust the Saviour as your Redeemer? That's why we can sing, O come let us adore him, Christ the Lord.